Last week, we looked at what if an old Earth view existed, how would that match up to the record that evolutionists throw out? Now, I want to make something very clear. I've tried to make it clear before, but I think there's still a bit of confusion about it. Tonight, when I was saying we were going to cover evolution one more time, I was reminded by one of our own, like, haven't we been covering it for like 10 weeks? No. What we've been doing is analyzing the debate for the first five or six weeks between old Earth creationists and young Earth creationists. What I want you to do to put that in context is understand this is a church debate. The church itself is divided. All right? If you step outside the church, there's no such thing as an old earth creationist or a young earth creationist. They just look at it as a bunch of kooky Christians that believe that God created something and their alternative theory is evolution. But I felt it was very important for us to first understand what old earth creationists taught, what young earth creationists taught for us to make a decision on one or the other, and then to tackle evolution. That's number one. Keep that clear in your mind. All right, that we've really only recently adopted any study of evolution, that all that eons of time stuff that we talked about, all those billions of years, were not to justify evolution. They were just to show that the natural world testifies to God's creation being much more expansive than our limited definitions in an English Bible might be able to capture. Number two point I want to preface tonight. I don't want to sit here the whole night and bash evolutionists. Okay, it's what it's going to look like I'm doing. And I'm going to try to do it in 20 minutes or less. Maybe it'll take 30. We have to bash them a little bit. But I believe that bashing somebody else's argument is never the way to win your own. If you have an argument, put forth your argument. If it's true, it's going to stand. This has been a problem that the church has missed for 200 years. And you people are the first to discover it. The church has missed for 200 years that rather than just attacking evolution, we need to, as a church, as a community, advance our own theory. And if it's true, it's going to stand. We prefaced that in one of our first or second discussions where we talked about some people who are at the head of the intelligent design movement who are just now starting to catch this idea and state, hey guys, maybe we should stop trying so hard to beat evolutionists down and just advance our own theory. If we could come up with a cohesive theory and divide the church or heal the divide in the church and get the people in the church to agree on one theory, then if it's true, no one will be able to knock it down. Won't that be the greatest testimony? So. I say that by way of preface, we are gonna spend some time knocking evolutionists tonight, but it's one night out of 12 weeks, okay? Keep it in context. All right, so tonight's talk, is there a scientific double standard? Here's the question I want you to ask yourself. How much evidence is enough? And why is only Christianity put to the test? All right, go to the next slide if you could, Anthony, just look at this old game. Does anybody remember Family Feud? <laughs> it is still on. Okay, we're going to play Family Feud tonight with evolution a little bit. We're going to survey all of scientists. You don't have to do that because I already read all those books. All you have to do is just listen for a few minutes and, and assume that I've surveyed all scientists. And we're going to look at what they have to say about evolution. And when you don't like the answer, you can say, survey said, eh. Good. All right. You guys have maybe seen the show. All right. You don't have to play along. I'll do it for you. Here are what millions of scientists surveyed have basically said about evolution. Let me read some of them to you. Here are some of the flaws in the evolutionary model. Number one, we witness natural selection taking place, but the production of one new animal species has yet to be documented. In your science classes in biology, you learn about natural selection. You watch how species quote unquote evolve. If you radiate a, a fruit fly hard enough, it will get red eyes suddenly or white eyes or something. You mate them together and they show you the genetics game and suddenly you see that something happened and that's called natural selection. Totally agree. Natural selection takes place. Everyone can document it. Even young earth creationists will admit that they see natural selection, but here's the problem. Not one single new species has been found to exist as a result 
of any type of natural selection. Eric. Right, let me accept that back out. If you're talking about a bacteria or a virus, they do mutate and change positively. And they will create other bacteria and viruses, but even they're very limited. They stay in their own family. All right, look at the second point. The change in species over time through natural selection is so slow that differentiation is hard to detect. In other words, if you watch natural selection taking place, it's like watching trees grow slowly, like watching the leaf kind of come out. I mean, it would take so long to watch this process, generation after generation, no matter how much natural selection is going on, the differentiation is hardly enough to make a species. Now, why is this significant? Because evolutionary models predict that for us to have this type of speciation we have on Earth today, we need one new species a year to have occurred over billions of years. We can't even produce one in all the thousands of years that man has been studying the issue or noticing differentiation and speciation, okay? Here's another problem for evolutionists. We're actually going the other way. Instead of evolving into more species, we're witnessing the extinction rate of one species per day. Now, species of what, I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't seem like there's that many things disappearing, but that's what scientists tell us. This is all from science. If you remove man's effect on the environment, it's one species per year is going extinct. And like we said, at the same time, there doesn't seem to be anything appearing. How does that contrast with the biblical record? Well, we saw that God created everything and then rested. That seems consistent with what we see, that no new speciation is going on. How does it compare to the fossil record? Look at the fossil record for a moment. You see that species existed and went extinct and new species came out. In an evolutionary model, you have kind of like a line. It just keeps going from the single cell to just more and more species, but no extinction is supposed to be going on because you can't, if, if any of the species are going extinct, you can't get to where we are fast enough. Go to the next slide, Anthony. We'll look at the fossil record for a second. We just talked about that fossil record idea is not going to work. There's just not enough time to have species going extinct at the same time that new species are being formed. We've previously talked about the mutation theory and what's wrong with evolution from a mutation theory. That one out of every 10,000 mutations benefits the species while all the others drive it towards extinction. So if scientists are going to say that the reason we have an evolutionary model that works is because, well, there were more mutations back then, there was more radiation, let's get some facts straight. First of all, the Earth has only been hospitable to life for about 3.5 billion years, so you can't use the entire existence of the universe. And in those three and a half billion years that life could have existed on Earth, there's just not enough time to end up with the thousands of species we have now, especially where we can't even see one being birthed in a single lifetime, no matter what types of mutations we radiate these things with. Okay? We know the number one objection to evolution is the third one up there. Okay? that all matter we know tends to break down from complex to simple. Evolution wants us to believe that it went from simple to complex. Completely opposite of the second law of thermodynamics which runs the entire universe. And finally, I know every single person here probably in high school biology learned about the primordial soup, remember that? That was that kind of early water climate that existed on Earth that had all these ripe pieces that were gonna form life by themselves. Well, that's been pretty much junked by most scientists now. Most scientists now believe that the primordial soup theory just, well, lack of a better word, doesn't hold water, okay? 
If you want a citation for this from a secular scientist, don't take it from me. Read this guy's book. Read Robert Shapiro, Origins, A Skeptic's Guide to Origin in, on, on, of Life on Planet Earth. It's written by a secular guy, so our New Song Library doesn't have it, but I still recommend it. And the reason I recommend it is because this is a guy who doesn't believe in God, who still thinks the whole thing is junk, and has been on the forefront of trying to establish, look, if we're going to at least talk and teach about the origin of life in schools, let's at least get it right. He's atheist, so he doesn't want us to talk about creationism, but he wants a better theory than evolution, which he believes is actually worse, because we have more to discredit evolution than we do to discredit the fact that God created the universe. See all the X's up there? Those are all the eh for each one of those points, okay? We still haven't had a foothold on what evolution really is. The universe is orders of magnitude, hundreds of billions of years too young to support evolutionary development. You'll see why in a minute when I start throwing some of these numbers out, but even if you have three and a half billion years, and even if you do have in your primordial soup, which we now don't believe in anymore, but even if you did have it, and even if a cell was to start replicating itself and become another species and become another one and become another one and become another one, we simply don't have enough time in three and a half billion years to get anywhere near the first species, let alone all the ones we have on planet Earth. Look at the second one, Harold Morowitz, world-renowned secular atheist and also mathematician, calculated the odds of evolutionary development as the origin of species. So basically saying, what are the odds that evolution could lead to the origin of species? What are the odds that a cell could reassemble itself given ideal natural conditions? His result, one in 10 with 100 billion zeros after it, was his calculation, okay? 100 billion zeros after the 10. That's the chances according to his calculations. This led to a huge problem in the evolutionary movement when one of their own came out with this. Subsequent work on his model is even more dismal for the evolutionists because as scientists discover, there were no ideal conditions. You're talking about a planet that's being bombarded by meteors. Life is going extinct every day. We know that even after life arose on Earth, the dinosaurs were wiped out by a meteor is probably the most probable theory. So there's all this extinction going on in the Earth. How are you gonna have ideal conditions, first of all, that many years ago for this to happen? He also had ideal conditions for the amino acids in this primordial soup, the atmosphere, the climate, the geology, all of this, and he still ended up with one in 10 to the 100 billionth. And now his colleagues are even more depressed as they recalculate his numbers and find out he's right. The odds are impossible. By the way, scientific impossibility is anything greater, I believe, than one in 10 to the 20th. That's usually scientific impossibility. Some, if you're liberal, it's one in 10 to the 50th. How about if it's one in 10 to the millionth? That would still leave you something like 99 billion times off or more, exponentially. So scientific impossibility, we've passed it like billions of zeros ago. So what are we gonna do about that? Next slide. More problems for the evolutionists. Even before Marowitz, co-Nobel Prize winners, they gave these guys a Nobel Prize for saying this stuff anyways. This is great. James Watson and Francis Crick attempted to calculate the odds of a DNA molecule arising spontaneously over the course of 4.6 billion years. Keeping in mind that life really could only exist from 3.8 to 3.5 billion years, but we're gonna give them the benefit of the doubt. They wanted to stretch it to 4.6 billion years. They calculated the odds that a DNA molecule could exist. The odds were zero. Like not even one in anything, they just calculated there's no chance. That kind of bummed them both out. 
but they won the Nobel Prize anyways. Zero. So what's the new theory that Crick adopted that's now floating around? Well, it's called direct panspermiation. Basically, it's an advanced race of beings living on another planet, sent spaceships out with their sperm aboard, and seeded various planets, including the Earth. They must have been men, obviously, because only men could be arrogant enough to go, I'm spreading my sperm all over the universe. Let there be seed and multiply, right? Yeah, the Scientologists finally have a point in the debate. Scientologists won, evolutionists zero. Next question on the board. All right, let's pause for a second because some of this is getting to be just we're beating up on them a little bit. But here's the thing. You guys ever wonder when you watch secular news why they're so fascinated finding life on any other planet? Water on Mars, like water on Jupiter, like we're going to find it somewhere. NASA funds a huge group to look for life in outer space. Why? You guys ever wondered why all your tax dollars are going to look for life in outer space? I worked at JPL, I worked for NASA, we had a huge experiment called SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. If you saw the movie Contact, they, they use SETI as an example, it's a real thing, all right? They point at the stars, they use like these incredible listening devices and they're just kind of like just scanning, waiting for somebody like to talk to Jodie Foster, okay? Why? Why are they doing it? Yeah, people do need jobs. That was part of the problem with the space program when I was there. What else? We can't find the answer on Earth. If the primordial soup theory doesn't really hold water for us, if the odds of evolution taking place on its own are in the hundreds of billions against the evolutionists, if the math to create just a DNA strand is zero, then you gotta look somewhere else. Now you know why Carl Sagan and all of those guys were still staunch evolutionists, but believed that there was something out there in the universe. And by the way, Christians have a right to ask this sometimes. They go, you know, God created this entire universe. Are we arrogant to think we're the only people out of all the billions of planets in this universe? That's a good question. Because Christians want to know, are we alone in the universe? Or is there other people? Is it, do you think there really is that spermiation race out there? Here's another question. Let's just take it head on. Could prebiotic molecules have come to Earth by comets and meteors, for example? I mean, look, before we accept the idea that some alien race put the super sperm on spaceships and sent them over here, like in War of the Worlds, where someday then like the lightning came and everything grows up. Before we accept that, let's just take a, a wouldn't it be easy, for example, for a meteor from one of these other planets that contain life to hit the Earth? It's a good question. Eric? It'd be really hard to do. That's, the, what they, that's what they got together to do. In 1999, the International Society for the Study of Origin of Life, real group of people, 300 of the top brains in the world on scientific development of life on Earth through the, <laughs> through the stars. They only hold these things every three years because it takes them that long to think of something to talk about that they haven't talked about last time because every time they get together, they get really bummed out. The last time they got together was 1999. I don't think they've gotten together since, by the way. They found that even if you're going to take the prebiotic molecule theory on a meteor, that just what we found from meteors all over that hit the Earth and what we know about meteors, there's no way that life could have ever survived on the meteor through space and through atmospheric conditions to ever be life that would exist on Earth. The panel actually went further after hearing testimony and study papers that were presented. The panel, and these are all secularists, by the way, no Christians here at this conference, 
The panel concluded there was no way in which life could have come from anywhere in our known solar system. Now, that's why they're still looking outside the solar system, because it might have come from outside the galaxy. But so far for evolutionists, another eh. Because it isn't coming from Earth, the odds are ridiculous. You have to start believing in a super alien race, and that's really what they're looking for. Go to the next slide if you could, Anthony. So enough bashing of evolution. Let's start thinking. Put on your thinking caps for a second. What's going on here? Well, what, what are these people doing? If the scientific answer is so flawed, and admittedly so, by secular scientists themselves, they're the ones that say it's flawed, why do they persist in their beliefs? What drives them in an effort to prove a hopelessly lost theory? Why is it in everybody's textbook? Why, when you can't find it on Earth, you have to look to the stars? Anyone want to venture a guess? What are we doing? What's going on here? Fear? So even if it's flawed, you'd still hang on to it because it's better than the alternative? But I mean, when you're wrong to one in 10 to the 100 billionth power, and, and that's your own mathematicians from your own, I mean, evolutionists themselves today have to admit to despite, I mean, let me put, let me, let's stop for a second. The word evolution has a lot of meanings to people. Evolution literally is a theory of zero to what we have today, and all speciation comes from one cell that replicated itself, formed the DNA strand, and birthed every species afterwards through modification of all those species. That, despite the fact that their own mathematicians say that's impossible, the one in 10 to the 100 billionth, that, in spite of the fact that we still cannot even find ancestors for any species linked together, and that, despite the fact that in all of our life studying it, we haven't found one species turn into another yet. Now, they do mutate a little bit and change, and if you radiate them with enough you know, microwave energy, they'll mutate a lot. But they're still the same species, and they can't replicate another species. They can't even replicate their own mutation in most cases, okay? unless they pass it down genetically. So the question is, if that's facing you, that's not a flawed theory at that point. That's almost like if that was Christianity, you would have just closed the book on it a long time ago and moved on and said, that can't be the book. Like when we studied Scientology and everybody just went, well, that can't be it and just moved on because it was just too far-fetched. Why hang on? Let's look at the example of this guy that we were just talking about, like either Crick or Morowitz, right? to the mathematicians that have calculated the probabilities of their own scientific theories being correct and come up really empty, all right? I mean, this is a fair statement. I'm not picking on them. They themselves have a dilemma. I think that those guys have at least heard of God, all right? But they refuse to even consider them as a theory because they're considering that's less probable than believing in an alien race that must have populated the universe with their life form, okay? That's part of the issue that's going on here underlying it. It's not like these people live in a vacuum. I like your summary, Joe, but the thing is, they're separated, yes, but they've at least heard of each other. I like Jill's answer. What was it again? I think it's fear. Isn't that what keeps people apart most of the time? Isn't that what separates the church over an issue? Okay. Take this as a humble opinion of, of just reading and analyzing what's going on. Yes, it's true that scientists have good reason, in part, to reject the church. We gave them good reason. Okay, we appeared, appeared, I will say, from the outside to be ignorant for far too long. You can trace it back to the trial of Galileo. You could trace it back to the Scopes trial at the beginning of this century. It doesn't matter. We've at least given them 50 hard years of ignorance in the church. You guys want a prime example of ignorance? Take Dr. Ken Hoven. You know, watch that guy. We watched him for three weeks and wanted to throw stuff at the screen, and we're Christians. Okay? I mean, we're on his side, and we just couldn't take the maddening stuff that this guy was throwing out. And if... 
you're a scientist and you hear that, you know, I would believe in a super alien race before I believe in that guy's God, all right? And I'm a Christian. But let's take on the other side for a second. Yes, we've given them good reason, but I think that fear is a driving factor here. And there is some pride, but fear is the number one reason. Because if you accepted the claims of Christ, you got to change your life, you got to change everything about your world, and you cannot do what you want to do. You no longer have an excuse. Paul tells us last week when we talked about the reasons that God created creation in the first place is so man is without excuse about what's going on in the creation. You can look outside and know the characteristics of God. You don't get to ask questions like, um, does your God send me to hell? Okay, then I don't want to believe in him. Your belief is irrelevant to the existence of God. But people don't want that kind of hard truth. So they blur the lines. What we have basically, if I can offer it to you humbly, is yes, we've given them a lot of reason to look elsewhere. And it's only recently that we have scientific minds in the Christian community who don't appear ignorant enough to be able to take them on in debate and actually sound intelligent in the debate. But I think there's a lot of fear on this side of science. They would rather look to the stars than admit that Christianity is true because that changes the entire equation for everybody. You know, when, when the movie Contact came out, you remember that movie with Jodie Foster? I love the movie for one reason. Now, Matthew McConaughey, I, I, excuse me, but Matthew McConaughey, sorry, is, Matthew McConaughey is like a hillbilly's dream, all right? He is not cool, all right? All right, pick somebody cool, I'll agree with you, but Matthew McConaughey, all right. Here's what I liked about the movie Contact, and it was not the way they dealt with religion. That was kind of, that was interesting. But what I liked about the movie Contact was they fixed a variable that we always take as a variable. They put it as a fix. Remember, we always ask, is there life in outer space? What Contact did was they fixed it. They said, there is life in outer space. Now what would Earth do about it? And that was what the movie was about until the last 20 minutes when it turned into an X-Files. But I mean, up until then, the whole movie was very interesting because now we've discovered there is life in outer space. What do we do? What does that mean for our religious institutions, our academic institutions? Do we go meet them? Do we build a craft? Do we try to contact them? What do we do? And that was what the movie was about. In a way, what I'd like to see science take on as a debate is what if God were there the same way? How would that affect the earth? What if we knew that Jesus Christ was the Lord of the earth with certainty? That was no longer a variable in any of the discussion. It became a fixed which Jesus promises it will be a fix at the end of time, but not now. But what if it became a fix today? How would that affect scientific communities? How would that affect other religions? How does that affect people who don't believe in God? How would that affect every part of our lives the way we live right now, where we as Christians profess to believe in Jesus, but don't always act that way? And that really is the question that I think is at the heart of this. If you think of that variable and fix it and say, no, that variable is now a constant, if you were an evolutionist or a scientist and you had to grapple with that, how hard would that shake your world? Look at the two other questions on the screen. This is where I come up with what I consider and what other people are writing about the Christian double standard. Is there any other religion that you know where a skeptic requires proof other than Christianity? Go back to your, go back to your coffee shop that we talked about last week where you're sitting next to the Buddhist and he's smoking the hookah and he turns to you and he goes, so tell me about Christianity. And you tell him about Christianity and he tells you about like his Buddhist belief. And we studied Buddhism in here. Remember that? Do you think it would be valid to turn to that person and go, prove it. Prove that there's a nirvana. Prove that you disappear at the end of all this meditating you're doing. I mean, that would be absurd in this world. 
Turn to a Hindu and say, prove that there's 330 million gods. I think that's just one too many. How do you know there's that many? Ask a Muslim, prove to me that the Quran was actually written by Muhammad, who most people claim was illiterate to begin with. Prove that. You're like, what do you mean prove it? Like, why do I have to prove it to you? It's just what I believe, it's just what I do. And yet the double standard seems to be with Christianity that we are in a position where if we're going to have anybody accept something, we have to prove it. We have to line up Genesis with all the scientific evidence. Scholars search like every day looking for contradictions. Remember, we talked about Dr. Ross. That was his job, was to search throughout the whole scriptures and find a scientifically disprovable fact so he could throw it out the window and say, aha, that stupid inerrant book is actually an error. I proved it. And what happened to him? He became a Christian. Why does that double standard exist? Ask a second question. Is there any religion in the world? And you might not know the answer, but I would venture to say the answer is probably no. But is there any other religion in the world that makes so many predictions about scientific discoveries or scientific or just science itself in their scriptures? I mean, we get pelted all the time for Genesis accounts of, did the flood cover the whole earth? Was it really, did Cain really find a wife in the next town? It was all these like things that we're like, we're held to this level of detail. Why? Because the Bible actually is that detailed. That timeline that I passed out to you that you guys are looking at, I mean, these people are wandering through the desert when they're writing the book of Genesis and they're able to predict the events of creation in order correctly. Okay, for, like I said, forget whether it took six days or six billion years, who cares? How could they predict the steps of life development on earth 3,000 years before they're even thought about without any natural or divine intervention by God? I don't know. But find another book that even tries to predict it. They don't even come close. Their myths about creation all have to do with man and God's fighting and all these strange things. But never get detailed and say, here's the order, by the way. It begins in the oceans, the oceans and the land separate, life develops in the oceans, plant life develops, certain life on land develops, then other life on land develops, man develops. And we're thinking, like, how do these people even know that? When every ancient civilization is so scared of the oceans, they could never even imagine that life would develop there. Because they don't even want to go in there. What would happen if a seriously committed atheist were to study the claims of Christianity and all the scientific, historical, anthropological, archaeological, geological, biological, and astrological evidence for Christianity? What would happen? That's what we're going to spend a few minutes on tonight. Next slide. Let's look at some of the skeptics in history and what happened to them. You guys remember Saul, first skeptic of all time? Saul, what did he do? He was a zealot. He was a killer of Christians. Stone Stephen hated Christians with a passion, hated him so badly. What happened to him? He became a Christian and is probably single-handedly responsible for the spread of Christianity into the Western world. Paul's missionary journeys after conversion, his writings, his defense of Christianity, his theology in the epistles, most historians claim was a greater conquest than what Napoleon and Alexander were ever able to do in their little lifetimes. Why? Because what this one guy did was take a religion that like, like 11 scared people believed and spread it to become the most dominant force on the earth for much of our time on earth. Second century. I can't even say this guy's name, Angela. Anna, Athenagoras? Yeah, there's our Greek expert. Second century, head of the famed school of Alexandria, began investigating the scriptures to disprove Christianity, and what happened? Became a Christian. Augustine, everybody remembers him. He's an early church father, right? He was also a philanderer, hung out with the prostitutes, lived in brothels. This guy was the furthest from Christianity you could ever get until he finally converted and became one of the most prolific apologists for Christianity. A life converted when someone challenged him just to investigate Christianity and listen to sermons about Christianity and what was going on. Let's jump into more of our modern time. Next slide. 
George Littleton and Gilbert West, both English noblemen, challenged each other in 18th century England. Let's go to Oxford. Back then, you'd go to Oxford for self-study under some heavy tutoring. Let's go to Oxford. We're going to disprove Christianity. You spend your thesis talking about Saul and the fact that he never converted. I'll dispute the resurrection. We'll both prove it within one year and we'll be done. We'll get our PhD in skepticism. One year later, both were ashamed to tell one another that they had actually converted to Christianity secretly during the year. Then they finally admitted it to one another. Frank Morrison, early 20th century historian, tried to prove that the historical Jesus differed widely from the Jesus portrayed in the New Testament. After scrapping several versions of his book, Morrison wrote, Who Moved the Stone? Which is today one of the most able defenses of the resurrection of Christ. Cyril Jode, PhD, head of the philosophy department at the University of London, believed Jesus was only a man and despised Christian religion. After investigating further to invalidate Christianity, he became a zealous disciple of Christ. Next slide. Most of you guys know who C.S. Lewis is. Most of you probably would be surprised he began his life as an atheist. In fact, C.S. Lewis says in his book, Surprised by Joy, I was compelled to accept Christ, brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. C.S. Lewis becomes one of Christianity's most influential apologists, and his book, Mere Christianity, is a classic. You guys know who Charles Coulson is? Head of prison ministries, former Watergate and, you know, convict who was jailed when he helped Nixon with the Watergate cover-up, was sitting in jail, read Mere Christianity, converted to Christianity, and is now a powerful leader in the Christian church helping in prison ministries. You guys getting the idea? John Warwick Montgomery, self-described 20th century atheist. He was challenged to check out the evidence for Christianity. As a result of being forced intellectually, he says, for integrity's sake to check out the evidence, I finally came around. He's a PhD graduate of Cornell, has a second PhD in theology, along with seven graduate degrees in law and science and other fields. He's written 130 articles, 40 books in defense of Christianity. That's kind of a smart guy. Next slide. Here's some others you probably don't know about. Maybe you heard about him because I read about him in college. Josh McDowell. I didn't know he was an atheist because he comes on pretty strong. William, Ram William Ramsey, the world-renowned archaeologist. Malcolm Muggeridge, famed author, literary scholar, and John Scott, probably one of the smartest people to ever live, they say. We read the testimony of Hugh Ross, who started reading the Bible to disprove it on purpose with his astrological, whatever his thing is, what is the astrophysicist degree and all that stuff. And finally, after reading the entire Bible cover to cover, looking for one error, just one scientific error, finally got down on his hands and knees 18 months later and accepted Christ. Look, I know that there are people out there who are incredibly smart who reject Jesus. I'm not trying to put these guys up here and say, you see? Just because all of them accept Christ, you should too. What I'm saying is I believe that if you take seriously the claims of Christ and you investigate them seriously, you've got a much easier road to accepting Christ and what his Bible says about creation and every other scientific event than the people who cling stubbornly to evolution. I mean, let's put it this way. It's better than one in 10 to the 100 billionth power. And I almost tell you it's better than one in 10. One in five. I bet you if you brought me five of the smartest people in the world and we investigated Christianity, I bet you at least one of them, just on the evidence alone, if not all of them. Look, I'm on dangerous ground here because I know that the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts us and the Holy Spirit is the one that's the advocate. Some people, when we study science and religion, say, why are we studying so much science? Why? I mean, isn't it just a matter of faith? And isn't the Holy Spirit does the work? Aren't you trying to be so smart that you can convince someone into the kingdom? And the answer is no, that's not what we're trying to do. 
Unfortunately, the people who don't believe in Jesus, though, are becoming so smart they can ask questions we can't answer or we seem not to have an answer to. And if nothing more, I'm hoping by the time we're done with this series next week that you can at least turn around and say, I know there's an answer for what you just asked. I might not know, but it's in one of these 20 books that we covered. And if you actually took the time to dig into them, you'd find the answer. And if they actually took the time to read them, I bet you they'd come out on the same side as you. You know, we spent some time beating up evolution today, but remember the last eight weeks, we spent time praising the Bible for how accurate it is, how it can't possibly predict some of the things it does, but it does, how they're impossible to be true, but they are. This chart is just one example. So I'm not trying to badger through knowledge people into a belief. Only the Holy Spirit can really give that. But it really, really hurts me when I see my secular friends asking questions that I know there are answers to. And most of the Christians who've tried to answer them or tried to even engage in dialogue have either turned them off completely because of the ignorance we've had towards science or have bungled the attempt so badly sometimes that these people walk away thinking, you know what, I'd rather look in space for the super aliens that came to impregnate the earth with their super sperm than believe in Jesus. Let's go to the next slide. This is the last slide. We're going to ask these same questions again if you look at them. There's one additional one at the bottom of the screen now. It says, if if study of Christianity can lead to true conversion, why aren't more people examining the evidence? I think it's the same question over and over, no matter how you ask it. People are genuinely scared of what they might find. Today in a world, if they're not sure that there's a God, then we could decide what we want to do about anything. You could decide today, you want to have sex or not? I'm not really sure there's a God to tell me either way. In fact, I know he's not there, so I'll just do what I want. You could dedicate your life to chasing money, even in a good way. You could dedicate your life to curing cancer, doing something good for life. You don't have to always be bad stuff and make that your only goal in all of life. Why? Because there really isn't a God, there's no heaven. It doesn't really matter what Jesus wants you to do with your life. By the way, I'm not saying that Jesus wouldn't want you to do that, but why even ask him? He's not there. Or you could decide, you know what, my life is going to be about what I want it to be, or my relationship with a gay lover, or anything you can fill in the blanks that you would have to actually think twice about today if you knew that God really was there. And I think that's fear of really accepting Christ or accepting God. I mean, we don't even get to Christ yet. These guys can't even accept God, that one God exists who's going to get the right to dictate what he wants. And here's a fallacy you'll hear over and over in people's discussion, because I hear it every day. A person asks a question like, all right, let me ask you this. Say that a child murderer murders like one kid a year, every year, and then the last year when he's caught, he accepts Jesus. Is he going to go to heaven? And of course, you can always ask the question back, like, are you saying he's a genuine convert to Christianity? You know, all that stuff. You know, not just somebody who's just like faking it in the end, but I mean, really genuinely cleans up their act in that last year in prison, right? And you think about the thief on the cross and you think, you know what, according to what I read in the Bible, that person's probably going to heaven. They go, ah, you see, I can't believe in a God who does that. But that's the kind of world we live in. You know, when I ask these questions, why aren't people investigating this more? Why aren't they being laid to truth more? The answer is because they threw truth out the window. Because if you were like these guys, all the guys that I cited were modernists. All the guys that converted to Christianity based on the evidence were modernists. You ever heard that term? Modernists are people who believe the evidence will lead them to the truth. They believe in a truth, one truth. There is truth. They'll find it somehow. Scientists used to be moderists. Modernists. Today, what are they called? Postmodernists. When search of the truth led us to the conclusion that evolution's odds were one in 10 to the 100 billionth, people said, I got a better idea. Let's just ditch the truth idea. 
truth is relative and we don't need it really anymore. Let's just search for our truth. And that's why it's harder these days, and I humbly accept that it's harder these days to argue people into the kingdom, to let them lead through truth, because they'll just look at you and go, well, that might be true for you. Which is why you'll never see an answer to one of those questions, somebody saying, are you a Buddhist? Prove that Buddha even existed. Prove that Buddha was there. Prove that there's a nirvana. They won't say that. They just say, wow, that's really nice. Good for you. That's nice for you that you're a Buddhist, you know? Right. If you say, you know what, I'm a Scientologist and I believe in all that stuff about whatever Tom Cruise believes, you know, people won't look at you and go, what are you, okay, maybe Scientologists people might look and go, what are you, wacky? <laughs> but other than that, say you're a Mormon. You say, hey, I believe in this. This is what I believe in. Joseph Smith had this revelation and, you know, forget all the contradictions. Nobody will say like, really? Well, I'll just say, oh, that's good for you. Good for you. Good. That's what's good for you. It's not what's good for me, but it's what's good for you. People stop looking for the truth. And that's why we're not even having any huge debates or dialogues back and forth because we just decided to chuck the idea of the truth. And that's going to hurt us. I don't think it'll last long. I think people will wise up eventually, maybe another 50 years. They'll think, okay, come on, I got to find something that's true. Not everything can be okay. But by then society will have kind of liberalized itself down to the lowest common denominator. Everything will be allowed and then we won't need post-modernity anymore. We'll just go back to something new. All right, predictions. You guys will have to live 50 years to find out if I'm right or not. But here's the point to close. People don't want to know. It's sad. Sometimes I think I conclude that, you know what, for those of us who made it into the kingdom of heaven before the doors close, that's kind of cool. <laughs> it gets harder and harder every day to witness to other people about it. But we still have a serious responsibility. Hard or not, Jesus said, this is the commandment I leave you. I'm leaving this in your hands. You need to witness to other people. Every single person you witness to, unfortunately, whether it's fair or unfair, whether it's a double standard or not, is going to somehow expect you to prove Christianity can be viable, despite the fact that whatever they believe in, whether it's science or another religion, is usually not even subject to proof. But we can either accept it or we can just kind of say, you know what, that's not fair, I'm not engaging in the game. And I think that if you ask Jesus which he would rather us do, he'd probably say, you know what, I'd rather you engage in the game because that was my commandment. You can imagine a guy standing in front of the lions in a Roman Colosseum saying, this is really not fair, Lord. <laughs> this isn't what I signed up for in Christianity. And I think the Lord's answer would have been the same. He's like, that's what I signed you up for. We talked last week about how the growth in the church in China is like miraculous. The more you persecute that church, the more it grows. Seems that way around the world. Seems like the Lord understands. So maybe your theory about oppressing the great minds in America and hardening their hearts is the way that his gospel and the true words that he wants about scientific analysis is going to spread. Because when we were free to talk about it, and when we had the podium, we had the mic, we seemed to shy away from it, and then they took the podium away, and now suddenly we want to have something to say about it, and no one's listening. So maybe it's in those moments that it'll finally happen. But I think the real answer, like I said, is going to be always going to be fear. And yeah, tonight's kind of a depressing talk on this, you know, because evolution doesn't give us an answer, and yet we haven't seen any miraculous things. But I think those conversions by those people... I think the work that they do leads to thousands of other people who will probably follow them. Just like there are people who don't care. There are people who say, you know what, my relationship with Jesus is personal. I don't care if it's scientific or not. That's good. But I think for every one person like that in the church today, there's at least one other person outside the church who's saying, actually, I do want to hear about some of this science stuff because the only reason I've always thought the church was ignorant was because I thought they were just junk science and all these things. So hopefully you guys have learned something that we can offer back and erase that theory of ignorance. Let's pray. Lord, I hope that even just like one-tenth of what we talk about pleases you. 
you predicted in the end that our world would get harder and harder to deal with and that more and more people would turn away from you. And Lord, I'm, I'm not one who believes in the end is near, but it, I see it, Lord, around us that people, it is getting harder to talk about you. It is getting harder to follow your commandment, to spread your words to the ends of the earth. Lord, it seems that even with our own friends, we come up short for answers sometimes. Lord, in those moments, I pray that you do nothing more than remind us that the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing the work, that there is no such thing as a failed witnessing attempt, that even if we just model our lives and our love, that we've done enough. Lord, you also commanded us to be ready with an answer for the hope that we have. To know you intimately and to know your word, to memorize it and have it on our hearts, and also, Lord, to have that reason for the hope we have in us, and that's Lord, what we're hoping to do here tonight. Forgive us, Lord, if we take this too seriously. Forgive us, Lord, if we don't take this seriously enough. Wherever we are, Lord, we know that we're imperfect, we're flawed, we don't know everything. We're just trying to grasp just a glimpse of who you are. And that even when we do that, Lord, we know that it's laughable because you're so much bigger than we can imagine or know. But Lord, you're not a God who hides from us. You're a God who reveals yourself through Scripture and left us clues throughout the Bible of your magnificent power and the fact that it was written through your Holy Spirit, how else, Lord, could it contain so many amazing things that have come true? I thank you, Lord, for those little tidbits of faith that keep us moving along the journey. I thank you for the witness of the people tonight that we talked about who, through their study, converted. Lord, maybe not the whole world's going to convert, but it gives me hope in moments of doubt that those men converted and became believers in you. Lord, I thank you even for someone like Dr. Ross who continues to try to help others to bridge that gap between their rational mind and their faith. May we become likewise in our dealings with other people. Always remember that we put love first, Lord. In your precious name, amen.